Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me today are Ben Seeger-Scott, Director, Investment Strategy at Tilney Best Invest and Kate Bailey, our newly promoted Deputy Personal Finance Editor at Investors Chronicle. Congratulations, Kate. This week, we're going to focus on individual savings accounts, ISAs, a tax wrapper within which investment did not incur capital gains tax when sold and no further tax on any income or interest they yield. This means investments within an ISA can grow more than if held outside. Within an ISA, you can shelter assets such as cash, investment trusts, funds, exchange-traded funds, shares and bonds, and in the new year starting in April peer-to-peer lending. At the moment, you can invest up to 15240 per tax year in an ISA. Ben, why is it important that investors make use of an annual ISA allowance? Thanks, Leonora. Well, I think ISA investment is really important and certainly something I'd suggest most investors consider investing in. Effectively, it's one of the easiest ways, as you say, to have a tax-efficient investment solution. Now, bear in mind, these are annual limits. It's really a case of use it or lose it. So I think even if you don't necessarily know what you'll do with your ISA today, it's worth putting the money in because obviously over the long term, tax, like any other cost, will drag on performance. It compounds in the same way the returns do. And like I said, once uh, the year's gone, then your allowance is gone. And there's no upper limit to how much you can actually have in an ISA. There's a limit to how much you can put in, but there's no maximum size. So I'd suggest investors really think if where they can afford to, they put as much as they can into their ISA really to, to get it in play. What sort of investments, let's say, thinking about the investment climate at the moment, might be good to hold in an ISA and uh, I suppose maybe for the long term because um, ISAs are a good long term tax wrapper? Absolutely. And I think when it comes to ISAs, really, aside from the limits on what you can and can't hold within an ISA, there's no right or wrong answer. There's not, oh, you should have put that in, you shouldn't have put this in. Uh, I think it is a case, like with most other investment accounts, normally I'd suggest investors look at a broad mix uh, of assets invested for the long term, consider your risk profile and then invest it as you would a sort of normal portfolio. Now, if you do have more than your limit and you are looking to be perhaps a little bit more tactical, arguably there are some uh, potential uh, tax efficiencies you can use. But again, that's down to, to the individual. So things like income on income yielding assets, capital gains tax. So around the edges, you can do a little bit. But more broadly, I think it's a case of just invest like you would normally a mix of assets looking for the long term rather than trying to be too aggressive in short term. Okay, our readers can um, see in our ISA supplement this week, some tips on um, how to allocate to their ISA and also 40 investment suggestions. It's all well and good to use your ISA allowance and there's lots and lots of providers who offer stocks and shares ISA. But the problem is they all have different charges and offer different features. So choosing the right one can be downright baffling. Now, Kate, you've actually been looking at the different options available. So what kind of provider offers the best option for a stocks and shares ISA? Um, Yes, I've been looking at the kind of low cost discount brokers and platforms where you can choose your own investments. And there is a massive kind of range of charges on different ways of charging that you can incur. So it, it really pays to have a good look. And I mean, some some of the key differences are 
for example, being charged as a percentage fee of your assets or being charged a flat fee every year and then being charged trading costs or not. Particularly if you have a larger pot, you might want to think about that flat fee versus percentage charge difference because obviously that will make a big a big difference to you, um, particularly if you have a smaller pot and you're being charged a percentage fee. So some of the really low cost ones are, for example, Halifax share dealing, um, which is just 12.50 a year. And then AJ Bell and TD Direct, neither of those charge you if you're just holding stocks and shares. They do charge you if you're holding funds. So those are both quite low cost. Some of the more expensive things like Hargreaves Lansdowne, um, which will charge you more because they have these kind of tiered percentage fees. But then it's definitely worth bearing in mind that that platform is is very good. It's very kind of user friendly. There's a big range of investments and actually they will give you discounts on on many funds. So there's kind of a lot of things to think about when you're when you're choosing. Okay. Are there any other sort of like costs or things that you'd particularly highlight? Well, I guess uh, trading costs is quite an important thing to highlight because if you are kind of expecting to deal frequently, then someone that will charge you, you know, twelve fifty every time you deal, that's going to add up. Uh, and then there are some services which which don't charge you at all to deal, particularly in funds. Fund dealing is is often free, so that's something to think about. And then you do need to bear in mind that if you hold funds, you will be charged. Um, on those holdings separately to the annual fees of your broker because that ongoing charge of the fund manager is passed on. So just other things to to add on to the array of costs there. Okay, thank you, Kate. Some useful tips there. Now, one type of investment you can hold in your ISA is exchange-traded funds, or ETFs for short. There are many different types of these, and for this week's issue, Kate has been looking at a particular subset of these known as smart beta ETFs. Kate, what are smart beta ETFs and why might investors want to consider investing in them? Yes, yeah, so it's snappily titled smart beta ETFs. Um, it's this concept of weighting stocks in an index by anything other than market cap, really. So you could have quality tilted indices or value tilted indices. So it's just anything other than that kind of plain, straightforward tracker. Okay, and what what's good about them? Why you know why might you want to invest in them? A lot of people like this idea of uh, being able to tilt their exposure to, for example, as I said, you know maybe the best value stocks or quality stocks, and of kind of just tilting their exposure to to something that is not just tracking the FTSE or whatever. So it's good for kind of diversifying your portfolio or maybe taking a more targeted bet on um on a trend or on a particular style of investing. Okay, maybe beating the um, broad indices. Yes, exactly. Or, you know, or just being more defensive. I mean, things like low volatility, people are very keen on that for the for the idea of being able to ride out some of this kind of market volatility by by holding slightly more defensive, a defensive version of the index. So there's, you know, it just offers a lot of choice. Okay, I mean, that sounds really good. But uh, two recently published reports say that smart beta ETFs aren't such a good idea. What do the reports say? Yeah, we've had two reports coming kind of on the back of each other and they're both surrounding the cost and valuations. We've had this Morningstar report which is basically just saying that smart beta ETFs tend to be more expensive or are on average more expensive. So in some cases up to three times. So it's interesting because that is the case when it comes to the US, but it's actually not the case when it comes to other indices like Japan, for example, where smart beta in terms of ongoing charge does tend to be lower 
than the average. So this report isn't saying, you know, in all cases, smart beta is more expensive and it's bad, but it's saying that that is on average the case. I think the interesting bit about this Morningstar report is this difference between ongoing charge, kind of headline fees and trading costs. So I thought it'd be kind of interesting and important to just differentiate those. So Ben, what what is the difference there between ongoing charge and you know total cost of ownership or trading costs i think really there's there's three different things to to tease out there so with etfs as with any other fund you have these ongoing charge figure so that uh, includes the the fund manager's charge so the annual management charge and it covers a range of other direct costs so things like fund administration auditing operational issues all of those get rolled in to the ongoing charge figure it's also used to be called the total expense ratio. So that's sort of AMC plus a little bit more. But also on top of that, within the fund, you also get the trading costs. So if you have an ETF that particularly, uh, it's a particular factor with so-called smart beta ETFs, because they tend to have a higher turnover than perhaps the, the market cap weighted version. So every time you buy and sell a share, they have their own underlying bid and offer spreads. There are costs to doing that. And that also gets charged to the fund because obviously you have to pay that either explicitly or as in, in the case uh, of a bid offer spread, sort of implicit within that there is a, a form of cost. So all of those are rolled up as internal costs within the fund. And it's really important to know just how much those costs are likely to be. And there's a range of ways that you can do that. Um, at Tilney Best Invest, we make our own independent assessment of internal costs. So there we look at the tracking difference over 12 months. So say, you know, how much is the NAV at the start of the year? How much at the end of the year? And how much has the index moved? And we sort of uh, take that difference and look at it over different time periods. And that gives us some sort of sense of the internal costs within the fund. But in terms of total cost of ownership, that's just one side, the internal costs. You also have to look at the cost of buying the ETF itself. And there, as with any other sort of listed uh, fund, such as investment trusts, you have additional charges. You'll have the bid offer spread again. It costs you a different amount to buy the fund as perhaps you can sell on exchange. There are also normally transaction costs to facilitate the investment. And as a general rule, the bigger, more liquid uh, the ETF then the smaller that bid offer spread. So relatively new ETFs and relatively small ETFs, because they're not that well known, they're not that well traded, there those on exchange costs can be a little bit higher. So really you need to look at both of those when you're looking at your ETF investments. Yeah, and so I mean I think we you mentioned there the spread as something which can hit smart beta ETFs. And I know that there are things like licensing fees can be higher for smart beta. Are there are there particular costs in there that do tend to be higher on average for smart beta ETFs, do you think? Uh, there are, yes. I think you have licensing costs. So that is the, the cost of the actual index provider. So if your index provider to the most common MSCI and FTSE, they will charge you a fee to use their index and to replicate their index. So that's a licensing fee and, and these more novel, these new indices, as with anything else in any other industry, you can charge a, a bit of a premium for a new and novel product. So I think these groups will tend to, to charge a higher price for some sort of sophisticated FTSE 100 or FTSE All Share a derivative than if you just want to buy a, a very common index like the, the FTSE 100. So that's uh, embedded. And a lot of that comes down to competitive pressures. So the ETF provider as well, if they have something new and novel, then they can 
possibly get away with charging a site premium. Really, it comes down to, to market forces, though, and I don't think that's any different to as we see in, in many other parts of the industry. You have a fund and you'll just determine what, what the market will bear. And I think on the back of that, it's been good to see in the traditional ETF space what, what amounts effectively to a price war. So if you look at something like a, a FTSE All Share Tracker, go back a couple of years and some groups were charging a percent or more to go into these trackers. These days, you can get a FTSE All Share Tracker, perhaps not uh, on, on the ETF side, but on the traditional tracker side for about six basis points. Um, uh, and it is sort of similar levels for the ETF. So I think as we saw price competition in those areas, as we see more and more smart beta products launched in similar areas, I'd expect that to continue. And actually, in, in the Morningstar report, that is a theme that they pick up on. So really, competition is good for, for the end investor in pushing down those costs. And actually, the, the report makes the point that costs have really come down in even the smart beta area, haven't they? Yeah, absolutely. And, and hopefully that will that will continue. And just on a final note there, because I, I feel like it... You could have come away from just reading the headlines of this report thinking, you know, oh, this means that smart beta is intrinsically more expensive. But some of these issues that we've just been talking about spread, that it's equally an issue for a very small plain vanilla ETF, isn't it, as, as much as it would be for a smart beta. And that's really more about size and novelty or how new the product is rather than smart beta versus you know, vanilla or whatever you want to call it, dumb beta. <laughs> uh, yeah, ab- absolutely. I think bid offer spreads, it's, it's, a, it's a consideration across all different ETFs. It does tend to be uh, the fact that larger plain vanilla indices, so the S&P 500, uh, very famously, huge ETFs in this space, very big, very well traded. So their bid offer spreads try to uh, tend to be very tight. Um, so a lot of it comes down to just how popular these are and at the moment, most smart beta products, I don't think very many investors are using them as core holdings. They tend to be to add a little bit of spice and something a little bit different. So they tend to be smaller and that means their bid offer spreads often are wider. But at the same time, the ETF providers do work very hard with the market participants to try and, and bring those spreads in as much as possible. It's also worth remembering that quite a lot of ETF trades don't actually happen on exchange. They happen over the counter and not all of those trades uh, are, are reported to the market. So it, it can be difficult to know exactly what sort of bid offer spreads a lot of people are getting. And I mean, actually c- connected, I guess, then to how popular they are and how many people are using them is, is this second report that's come out, which is maybe a bit more of a fundamental attack on um, on the whole concept of smart beta. So it's um, been published by this group research affiliates who are actually responsible for coming up with some of the first smart beta indices or some of the best known maybe. So they've come out and said this smart beta industry is, is fueled by hype essentially and that kind of people flooding into very successful um, indices or, or good strategies has pushed up the valuations of the stocks underlying those indices and it's basically fueling a bubble and you know in their words smart beta is is an industry which could go horribly wrong so i thought it would be good to drill down into some of these points and just maybe question that a bit so i mean their, their key points from this report are that investors have been looking at the past performance of of indices, of ETFs, and basing their investment decisions on on that kind of backward-looking data, and that what that's doing is is kind of fueling fueling this bubble, which 
is just based on nothing more than rising valuations rather than um, good underlying fundamental arguments. So, I mean, I guess breaking that down, firstly, this idea of investing in something which has done well in the past, well, what's the risk of doing that, do you think, Ben? Well, I, I think that's a risk not just for smart beta. Actually, I, I think it's a much broader issue. The, the fact is, for a long time, particularly post-global financial crisis, and, and I'll only briefly stray into macroeconomics, but this idea that central banks printing money have pushed up asset prices across the board. And most investors at a general level are, are fueled by fear and greed. And across the board, there's this whole fear of missing out FOMO, they call it, this fear of missing out. They see rising equities. Then people start by saying, actually, they, they look a bit overvalued. Then it carries on going. Then you get this, oh, I've missed the boat fear. And people dive in. And I, I think that's not a factor of smart beta. I think that's a, a factor of, of human psychology. But moving back to smart beta, the other problem with smart beta is it's a very wide stable. It's actually an umbrella term for a huge number of strategies. And that's like you, you could make the same argument with, with active management. A lot of people will look at an active manager that's done well recently uh, and will pile in on the back. I think smart beta, there are certainly strategies that may be pushed to some extent on, on the sense of backtesting. So they'll come up with some sort of process, say, look how well it's done over the last five years, come and buy my product. But I don't think that's specific to smart beta. And given that the, mass, the effective ballooning of the number of smart beta products we're, we're seeing out there, I think that's why it's more important than ever, exactly the same as you would do with, with active funds. Really look at the individual products and assess for yourself whether you think it's a good product and whether you think there are reasons that performance will continue in the long term. And, and in, in my experience, I like smart beta. I don't like the term smart beta, but I like the idea. I don't idea think of, anybody does. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's an ongoing debate, but a, a certain well-known ETF provider has plastered every cab in London with the phrase. So at least if, if we say smart beta, we all know what it means, even if we argue over the name. But, you know, I, I think it's really important to really look under the bonnet and say, What's the strengths? What the what are the weaknesses of a given strategy? Which markets do I think it will and won't perform in? And then invest on that basis. But there are a lot of similarities there to how you look at active fund managers. There are active fund managers that tend to do well in sideways and, and challenged markets. There are other active managers that do well in, in bull runs, in upward moving markets. And, and then again, you, you can often pick which manager you like for a given market environment. Yeah, because I mean, I think ultimately... When we talk here about smart beta or about factor investing, we would we would always say these don't work in every market condition, as you just said. Like like with anything, you know, investing in value is not always the style that's going to win. I found to some extent some points here kind of maybe obvious or or a little unfair. Do you think the point here is that people have been seeing smart beta strategies as as a kind of magic bullet? Is is that why this report is so important and has been picked up and and kind of run with? Yeah, I, I definitely think there is that risk because they are new and novel. There's a lot of backtesting around. And the fact is for any fund that, that you might want to launch, any fund your backtesting always works because if it doesn't, you wouldn't launch the fund. You, you always change it until the backtesting looks like it works right. So there's no such thing as a bad backtest. I think because they're novel, the market in aggregate hasn't really had the time yet to properly interrogate these products. So as the field matures, as we see in other markets, I think some of the hype will cool down like we're, we're talking just now about the terminology, I think the mere fact it's called smart beta, it's a very marketing-derived term, that speaks to some of the hype. But as, as markets move forward and as people become more familiar with these, uh, I think investors will become more comfortable with the concepts. 
they'll know what does work and doesn't work in different environments. Uh, and, and I think research affiliates are bang on that quite a lot of these strategies probably are the product of backtesting. They are data mined and, and the, the product of uh, statistical anomalies. I think in time, those sort of strategies will be found out. And really, as we mature, a lot of these will close and will really separate the wheat from the chaff. And that's the process we're going through at the moment. I think to say, as an entire industry or concept, that smart beta will go horribly wrong. I'm not sure I agree with that. But as with active management, I think some will do well, some will do badly. And yes, some might do very badly. But I don't think that that's necessarily true of the industry as a whole. So just as a final point, then, for for anyone wanting or looking at a smart beta index, how do you think people should look at them to decide whether what they're about to invest in is just a kind of hype fueled valuation driven index or whether it's something which is kind of whether stocks have been chosen on some kind of fundamental basis or there's some rationale there? What should people what's what approach should people take? Well, really, really, when I look at smart beta products, there's three things I focus on uh, to, to start with, at least. And the first one, I think, overwhelmingly it's important that whatever strategy is being followed is based on sound fundamental rationale maybe behavioral based maybe risk based but there should be some feasible rationale that when someone explains to you uh, oh it goes up for this reason value stocks do well because um, cheap companies tend to outperform but you're also being potentially uh, benefited or, or offset for the risk of these sort of value crashes so cyclical risk Value uh, investing tends to have a lot of cyclical exposure. So, you know, to me, that makes sense. I can see markets that I think value styles will tend to do well and tend to do badly. But there's a a sound economic rationale there. And I think it's important in that regard that there's academic research and literature out there that really backs that point up. So the first thing I look for is is good, sound economic fundamental basis. Um, And then the second point I look for is to see whether or not this identified strategy persists after it's been published. And I think the advantage there, a lot of these factors were established in the, the mid-90s, particularly the farmer French factors are very well known in the market. And the advantage there is these papers were published in the 90s. So you can say, OK, they published in, hypothetically, say, 1995. How's the strategy done since then? And that's known in the jargon. It's called out-of-sample assessment. And there you're looking, has that persisted afterwards? And I think that also helps give you some idea that hasn't been data mined because that says, OK, admittedly, that was back testing at the time, but subsequently, if it works, that lends some sort of strength, similar in many ways to, to Einstein's relativity arguments. We've had the LIGO experiments as well, that sort of out of sample testing. And then the third and perhaps most important is you have to have some reason to think that this factor or this pricing anomaly will persist in the future. And some of that, I think, is what research affiliates are getting at. You need to say, OK, if you're happy with there's a sound rationale, it persists out of sample. Do I think from here on in, that this particular factor will do well. And that feeds back to looking at the feasibility. Why does it do what it does? How does it perform in in different markets? So really fitting that in with your overall view. So that's what I really look at when looking at the index. And then other factors such as cost and, and your own portfolio comes in just after that. Okay, thank you, Ben and Kate. Now, since the announcement of a date for the referendum and whether the United Kingdom should remain a member of the European Union, a number of prominent figures in financial services have come out either in favour or against. But someone who's effectively sitting on the fence is the UK's most prominent fund manager, Neil Woodford, who says it won't make a huge difference to the UK economy 
either way, whether we stay, you know, or whether uh, we leave. He also says that in view of this, it's not going to substantially affect the strategy of his fund's portfolio. And you can see exactly what he says um, in our full interview with him in the magazine. Now, Ben, regardless of what we think about the economic outcome of staying in or leaving Europe, it is generally agreed that markets will be volatile, at least in an Avanda referendum, and maybe even more if there's a vote to leave. So should investors in equity markets or even bond markets be worried and do anything about this? I, I think it's it's an interesting one. Obviously, Neil Woodford very well respected. A lot of people take his views on board. Um, and I think, again, regardless of the economic impact, the fact is markets are driven by perception and sentiment more than uh, economic yeah. fundamentals. And we don't really know in the run up to, to the referendum how things will go. And as, as you rightly point out, afterwards, there's potentially more uncertainty. What I do know is that markets don't like uncertainty and that drives volatility. Markets and businesses, you know, they they sort of crave a stable environment. So from that regard, it does have some sort of impact on investments. I think one of the problems at this stage is we are relatively close to the referendum itself. So it's not really in the sort of investable time frame. The day after the referendum, it's almost a binary event. It's going to be uh, a remain or a leave. So I think in that regard, it's very difficult to make sensible uh, investment decisions on a sort of medium term basis. So it's hard to take significant positions in your portfolio to position for it. What I would say is, from that regard, it sort of makes sense to my mind. This is why we talk about having globally diversified portfolios. A lot of this noise around the referendum, it's driving sterling, certainly. Uh, But really, in the medium to long term, it's going to be factors like Fed policy, how China manages its uh, debt situation, the global slowdown, secular stagnation, oil prices, these big macro effects. That's what's going to drive your portfolio in the long term. Uh, In the short term, It's something to be aware of. There are certain mitigating factors. So in in the strategies that we run, we've been thinking about this from the the general election last year. It was well known that the Conservative government was going to push for this referendum and that could cause some volatility, particularly as our buyers strikes from overseas investors that simply hold off investing in the UK. We've seen that recently. Some of the, the guilt auctions haven't been particularly well subscribed. So around the edges... There are some things you could do, look to uh, favour perhaps overseas markets rather than UK or sterling based assets. And you might also think multinationals could do relatively well. Uh, Their their businesses are globally diversified. And if they're UK based, they can get some translational benefits from repatriating those overseas profits on exchange movements. So around the edges, there have been some things you could do. But overall, I think it's about being globally diversified. There'll be a lot of news flow. This is one of those things I don't think in the grand scheme is going to have a significant uh, effect on a globally diversified portfolio. OK, and I think it would be fair to say, wouldn't it, um, Brexit or no Brexit or referendum or whatever, uh, investors in any case should have a, a well-diversified, maybe globally diversified portfolio, shouldn't they? I and mean, they shouldn't all have, you know, as long as it's got a reasonable risk capital, they shouldn't have everything in the UK anyway. Absolutely. I I think it makes sense to have a globally diversified portfolio. It mitigates, hopefully, certain risks. You you offset one against the other. And over the long term, you do get these these synergistic effects. You get improved long term risk adjusted return because obviously gains in one market are often offset by another. So it's not just a case of not being in or out of certain assets. It's the way the two uh, hopefully lowly correlated assets interact that gives you that that improved risk adjusted performance it's the magic of diversification okay Uh, on that note uh, perhaps another argument for diversification is that 
a more immediate concern of Neil Woodford is dividend cuts in the UK, because he believes a number of UK companies are paying unsustainable dividends. Now, UK equity income funds are obviously focused on this market and are very popular um, with many investors uh, for obvious reasons. So Ben, are they still a good option for investors in view of dividend cuts and possibly more dividend cuts? Dividend cuts are very much in focus at the moment. And I think one of the problems that many investors are currently struggling with in a low interest rate environment, income is that much harder to come by. Uh, and a large number of investors rely on on income to, to some extent from their investment portfolios. So from that regard, I think there's always going to be some demand for income. Uh, and at the same time, one of the markets that you can see is challenging income yielding, equity yielding assets overall, but within equities, equity income in particular, is a rising interest rate environment. And as some of those concerns ebb away, that is a bit of a tailwind for equity income. But you're exactly right. Dividend cuts are a big concern. Uh, And it's important to remember a high dividend yield on paper isn't worth anything if it doesn't then manifest. And I think that's what Mr Woodford is really picking up on. And I think this is really an area that active management has a lot of strengths. And as Mr Woodford's his own portfolio is positioned away from those high risk areas, so the miners, uh, basic materials, there's a lot of risk there. And we've already seen some of the big players cut their dividend. There are other parts of the market, particularly in pharmaceuticals uh, and, and tobacco, where Mr Woodford is quite heavily invested. Those are the relatively safe areas in terms of dividend cut. Obviously, Mr Woodford is, is challenging GlaxoSmithKline at the moment. But that aside, I think that's where active management, those stock picking uh, active fund managers can really add value in this space. And at the end of the day, investors looking for income, they do have to accept in the current environment, you're probably taking on a slightly higher level of risk than you have have historically. Okay, that said, is it worth looking at, let's say, overseas equity income funds alongside your UK equity income? Uh, Yes, very much so. In line with a diversified, a globally diversified portfolio. I think if you're going to have an income portfolio, obviously, many of these will tend to have things like uh, corporate bonds and uh, uh, maybe even sovereign bonds. But a lot will have high exposure to equity. And there, as with uh, a sort of more growth or balanced orientated portfolio, it's important to be geographically diversified. By having exposure to overseas equities, you'll generally also have some exposure to currency movements, which is an added risk. But I think you do get those global diversification benefits. Now, using Neil Woodford's fund looks sensibly positioned to navigate um, these things, but it's a young fund. Do you think Neil will be able to emulate the strong record he achieved um, when he was at Invesco Perpetual? I mean, it's two years in, it looks good, but it is only... Yeah, two years in. Well, I think Neil Woodford is one of the best known names in, in UK asset management. And really, a lot of his performance does come down to, to the skill of himself as a, as a fund manager. At Tilney Best of S, we've always uh, made a point of following the fund manager, particularly when they move from fund to fund and house to house. So I think a lot of his performance does come down to his skill as a manager. That said, you're right, he's at a different house, even though he has some people he does know. Broadly, it's a slightly different team around him. Some of the dynamic might be different, so that could have some sort of influence in the performance of the fund in the long term. But added to that, even if Neil Woodford's skill remains unchanged and even if the, the team dynamic doesn't affect things too much, if you simply look at his record, I think as we stand today, the investment environment is different. If you look at a world we're looking at slower growth, slower returns, a sort of lower inflation overall, 
even if everything else is intact, we are now in a different investing environment. So even though he might be a talented manager, uh, generally, I, I, I think across the board, returns for the next couple of years look unlikely to be as strong, perhaps, as, as they have been in the past, particularly in Mr. Woodford's and several other managers, particularly in their heyday, where returns tended to be higher. I think the investment environment might provide a challenge. Okay, thank you, Ben. That brings us to the end of this week's podcast. So it just remains to thank Ben Seager-Scott, Director Investment Strategy at Tilly Best Invest, and Kate Bailey, Deputy Personal Finance Editor at Investors Chronicle. You can read more on ISAs and good investments to hold within them, fund platform charges, smart beta ETFs, and Neil Woodford in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle, our ISA supplement, and the website. Thank you for listening. <laughs>